0: If you've been listening to the Business of Biotech podcast for a while now, you'll recall that Erin Harris has joined me to co-host a few episodes. Erin's my friend, colleague, and chief editor over at SelenGene.com, and she just recently launched a podcast of her own. It's aptly named Gene the podcast. And if you're working in the Gene space, you should give it a listen. It's a collection of interviews with the industry and academic leaders moving the space forward, and you can find it at SelenGene.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Selling Gene the podcast. Check it out. Welcome back to the Business of Biotech. I'm Matt Piller, and my guest today is Dr. Arthur Xianabus. Did I get that right? Yeah. There you go. All right, who's been president and CEO at homology medicine since 2016. He's a UNH PhD grad that is postdoc at Harvard Med School and stayed on there as an associate professor of medicine for some 15 years before he jumped into industry, first into big bio at Shire and later into the new and emerging biotech space. Dr. Zianavis serves on the boards of uh, the UNH College of Agriculture and Life Sciences and Stoke Therapeutics, and he chairs the board at ACUIS. For its part, Homology is doing some pretty great things in the AAV gene therapy and gene editing fields. And its gene therapy monoclonal antibody plat- platform, GTX MAB, which I'll ask Dr. Zionibus to expand on, is also very exciting. In early studies, its AAV-HSC vectors are demonstrating the capacity to incite the liver to produce and deliver fully functional monoclonal antibodies at sustained expression for up to 20 weeks, which could positively disrupt both the way we think about monoclonal antibody therapies and vastly expand the therapeutic targets for gene therapies. So we'll talk about that, but also unique to uh, Dr. Zianabos and uh, his company are the fact that they're betting big on the massive market forecasts for the field, and they're putting their chips down on their own soil. Homology is building its company from the ground up, investing in its own manufacturing facilities, and feverishly acquiring the talent to staff those facilities. So here to talk with me about all this and more is Dr. Arthur Zianabos. Arthur, welcome
1: to the show. Thank you, Matt. It's a uh, great intro, and you nailed the pronunciation of my last name perfectly. Um, all right,
0: well, don't 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 set the standard too high because I'm sure to mess it up as we roll through the, the conversation. So I want to start uh, just just getting to know you a little bit better. Um, you know, as I mentioned, your your background is, is super intriguing. You, it, it looks as though, on paper, anyway, you had a pretty comfortable position at Harvard Medical uh, as an academic, um, and then you jumped into big bio at Shire um, back in 05, I think you made that move. So tell us about that. What, what prompted that that
1: move? Yeah, it was a big career decision for me. I had uh, built up actually two labs at Harvard, one at the Channing Lab. Um, it's associated with the Brigham and Women's. Uh, and another uh, in the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Biology, which is on the quad at at the medical school. Um, One was focused on vaccine development, very very relevant for today, Uh, and the other was focused on T-cell regulation of kind of the microbiome, as it's come to be known now. So so going back, uh, you know, almost 30 years now, uh, working in in areas that are very relevant uh, today scientifically, uh, and also did a lot of work on the T-cell uh, side on these uh, costtory molecules like PD1, PDL1, which are now you know known as Keytruda and, and, and other drugs that are helping cancer patients. I'm so very proud of the work early on we did uh, back then. Um, it was really driven my desire to, to, to work in science um, by my upbringing. Uh, my dad uh, was a, a local family doc, uh, first generation Greek American in Manchester, New Hampshire, which um, in the local parlance is Manchester, New Hampshire. (laughs) Uh, And I followed him around the hospital and basically became the Greek community there. They're a kind of local physician. They gathered the money for him to go to medical school and to pay back that debt, he came back and took care of him. And uh, I've always been intrigued by trying to help uh, people who uh, are suffering from disease. And uh, that led to my academic work uh, for 15 years. And that's really why I transitioned to uh, industry. So in 2005, I had the opportunity to join um, a small uh, rare disease company known as TKT. And as I was transitioning over my lab and everything, Shire came in and acquired them. And basically, my job uh, was we had at that time one rare disease drug on the market, XUS, making $60 million a year. And my job was to build the pipeline. Of drugs like that behind it, and that was my initial um, foray. But I had always, in academia, had done a lot of basic research and translated that that research to licenses. So I did a lot of licenses to companies. I actually had a lot of collaborations with companies. I liked that work a lot because I felt like um, you know drug development is very hard and it takes a lot of different disciplines. And I felt a little bit limited at Harvard. Um, to try to kind of accomplish my goal of translating all the way into the clinic and, and commercialization. So I decided to kind of uh, uh, join forces with, uh, with Shire uh, and start developing drugs all the way through to commercialization and, and had a great run there for uh, close to 10 years.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And I've, I've heard that refrain before from, you know, academics turned, uh, turned, turned industry execs uh, the, the desire to, you know, kind of scratch that entrepreneurial itch um, and yeah, uh, sort of, uh, um, I guess, build on their ability to, to do what they were meant to do. And, and, and that's, you know, serve and help. Um, so at, at what point did, that sort of entrepreneurial bug really step in? Because, I mean, you know, working in academia and, and licensing, um, you know, doing those deals is one thing, but then taking on the risk, right, of, of saying, okay, I'm going to put a stake in the ground uh, and I'm going to go all in on this. Um, was it, did that come naturally to you? And at what point did it sort of really settle in?
1: Yeah, uh, the answer is no, it didn't come naturally because usually I'm a grinded out kind of person. Uh, and I had been at Harvard for 15 years, as you pointed out. And was doing quite well there. I had two NIH grants, and on my way. And then, you know, this opportunity—I kept getting presented with opportunities with with a number of companies along the way. I kept saying no, and then I just decided like it was time. You know, I I had a lot of um, input from families and and friends who said, you know, this is what you're meant to do, really. And uh, I took the I took the leap. Uh, into it uh, with a lot of trepidation I have to be honest with you um, mm-hmm. because I really didn't know how it was going to go uh, I had been used to kind of meeting my own team I had been used I mean I'm a team player uh, based on my whole makeup but i had been used to kind of having you know my say as to how it goes and how I was going to blend into the industrial environment where you really need to be collegial, you need to work across functions, you need to build consensus, you need to do all these things to to drive something through into the clinic and then commercial. Um, You know, I I was a little bit worried about my ability to do that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. 15 years later, I can say, I think it's worked out okay.
0: Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, Yeah, one of the one of the aspects I think I hear folks uh, in in your position, when they first make that leap, they they struggle with most is perhaps the I don't know. I don't know if the the correct term would be salesmanship, but 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 effectively you are right like you're you're your chief chief cheerleader. I mean, chief 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 salesman when it comes to finance, when it comes to, you know, VC uh, capital, uh, you know, rallying the troops, uh, influencing the board. Right. Like. That's all stuff that in academia, maybe maybe you don't get to exercise those muscles too much.
1: Yeah, that's true. I, I would say all those things are required uh, in, in a job like I had at Shire, and I was in different roles there, and certainly this job. But I'll tell you something, um, fighting for space and money uh, at Harvard uh, and, and dealing with the politics there also taught yeah. me a lot. Uh, okay. A lot yeah. of times uh, I would say, you think this is like politically challenging? This is like kindergarten compared to what, you know, I had to deal with at Harvard.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, I, I certainly uh, don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't want to underestimate the, you know, the, the tough skin you grew there. Okay. Um, so you've been at Apology since uh, since its inception, effectively 2015, 2016 kind of time frame. Right. Um. So, so how did that specific role uh, come
1: about? Yeah. So, you know, uh, my last role at Shire um, was as head of research and early development. And I was working really closely with our BD group uh, looking to acquire technologies because I'm, I, I'm here at a, a company that successfully developed and commercialized, you know, four or five uh, enzyme replacement therapies for rare genetic disorders. But I'm thinking, hey, this, this is there's a future out there where there's going to be treatments that come on board that are one and done. Uh, gene therapy, gene editing. And, and we need to kind of bring those in-house and understand the power of, of that technology. So we we actually did a number of in-licensing deals for antisense molecules, gene therapy. Uh, I worked very closely with the venture arm of Shire and Gwen Mellenckoff there. He made uh, venture investments in Bluebird early, early days, 2010, 2011, you know, just mm-hmm. as that company was starting. Early investments in Sangamo and their gene editing. So I became familiar and very... Um, much appreciated the potential of those kind of um, approaches to treating rare genetic disorders and very passionate about bringing something to, to these patients that you know they can benefit for the rest of their lives. And um, that led me to really discover the gene therapy gene editing field. Uh, and, and at that time I was introduced um, to Kush Pamar who is uh, a, a venture partner uh, at 5AM Ventures. Who, who I met and he introduced me to this technology using, a, using a, a family of AAD vectors that actually had the ability to do both gene therapy and gene editing. So you could actually put genes into uh, the chromosomes of cells. And I was fascinated by that. And I thought it was a great way um, to, to, to kind of realize the power of that uh, platform. And so, um, you know, we, we pulled in uh, my, my colleague, Albert Seymour, uh, who's our chief scientific officer today at Homology. And he and I uh, worked very closely together at Shire. Uh, and we basically launched the company on this technology back in um, March of 2016. Company had been formed already, but we kind of were the you know, first couple of employees there and, and built the company up from there.
0: Yeah. So you're going on, you know, going on, going on year six, right? Uh, effectively. Um, what, what's your, what, what does the company look like today? How many employees do you have?
1: Yeah. So we have 215 employees. Uh, we're headquartered in Bedford, Mass., right outside of uh, Boston. Uh, and, you know, we're sitting in a building uh, that we call the uh, World Headquarters of uh, Homology uh, that um, houses all our activities, R&D activities. But importantly, as you mentioned, we had built our own uh, in-house manufacturing capability, and we can talk a lot about that. So I'm really proud of um, of the team we have built uh, here, and you know, top-notch people, all very committed to the mission of the company. And you know, and I and I think you know the goal is to continue to grow uh, the company. Um, and in that short period of time, we've taken a technology that came out of you know an academic lab. And we will, by the end of this year, have three different clinical programs uh, ongoing. So we've moved pretty quickly um, and I think executed really well um, in terms of, you know, taking kind of nascent technology and moving it all away into patients.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I want to dwell there for a minute. 215 employees, um, you know, in, in six short years moving a nascent technology into into something real. Um the fact that, you know, a few years ago, this was a nascent technology and there there wasn't necessarily a glut and remain, you know, the, the problem remains. There's not a, a glut of, of talent in this space. You know, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy to go out there and staff up 215, build a manufacturing facility, get them all to work and and and, and working competently. So to the degree that you can, if we can talk a little bit about that strategy, that, that growth strategy around the people aspect uh, to begin with. Um, you know what? What have you? How, how have you gone about attracting and retaining that that talent?
1: Yeah, I think you know one of the keys is building a really great network. Uh, and I've been you know around town for thirty years and met a lot of people in in Cambridge, Boston area. As you know, it's it's it's, it's there's a lot of talent here. There's you know over sixty six colleges. Uh, yeah. in universities in, in the area, but you know, it's got some powerhouse places that produce some really smart people. Um, and and I've really kind of relied on my network and my my team's network to bring people on board. And I think you know what we've tried to build is a company that's very you know heavy on the culture of of helping people uh, who otherwise can't be helped, uh, and really building on uh, you know people that I've worked with. Before and Mm -hmm. led before. And I think, uh, you know, that's really helped us and and my team, very similar, like minded folks, uh, have their own networks. And that's really how we cobbled together, I think, a really top notch team of 215 people who um, are just really all dedicated and committed to bringing these transformative uh, treatments to to patients who don't have them right now. So I, I think it really does. Um, rely on one's own kind of uh, mission and, and we've let in communicating that mission and that and that goal to people uh, and get them to really buy in and believe and I, and I think that's what you, you will find here at Homology is folks that are really here um, because of the mission but also because of the people mm-hmm. and people feel that uh, you know as they come in the door. their first couple of weeks, I'll check in on them and say, hey, how's it going? Oh, everybody's been great. It's been really a collaborative environment. Um, and, and that's important. And that, that, that gives you the stickiness in your employee base that you really need, especially today with, you know, a very competitive environment out there for talent.
0: And- yeah. As it relates to, um, you know, the ability to recruit people who are ready to go, right, who can hit the ground running. Um, I, I'm interested in, in what you see, what, what, what's changed over the past six years, what's gotten better. And I ask that because I've had plenty of conversations with leaders of, of uh, gene, uh, selling gene companies who, who kind of told me, you know, when we got started, the expectation was that we would bring in really smart people who, you know, perhaps grew up in a different space. Who could apply what they knew in that space and and learn as as we moved along? Because there was a lot to learn, right? And, I, and I'm sure, I'm absolutely sure that that's still the case in, in many aspects. However, you know, as you've grown through this through the past six years, um, so so does academia, right? So do courses of study that that folks are coming out of school with. Um, so does the field in general. So when you look at competitors that perhaps you want to snipe some uh, <laughs> some talent from. Um, you know they've they've come along, so so have you seen re- real change in I guess the uh, preparedness of potential recruits and and the folks that you're bringing on board over the over the course of the last six years, um, and and again I I fully acknowledge that it's still not easy pickings so so to speak, uh, but but do you, do you see some change kind of happening in, in that regard?
1: Absolutely, see that at uh, the the more junior level so. Uh, undergrads coming out of uh, a science program at any one of the universities around here are much more prepared now, today, than six years ago to jump right in, hands-on in the lab, versus six, 10 years ago where you have to do a, a fair amount of training. And you know it's one of the reasons why I joined the uh, College of Life Science and Agriculture board at UNH. UNH is very well known and respected for the quality of the students that come out of those science programs and their ability to really jump right in to uh, an environment in biotech, whereas six seven years ago you'd be very cautious about doing something like that. So I've seen the programs morph along and be much more hands-on and practical. Um, you know, to the point where you know they really understand kind of the the um, the the inner workings of biotech. Uh, you know, in the old days you know, you came out with a, with a bachelor of science. I went to Boston College here in town um, yeah, yeah. and it was like, you're going to medical school uh, or you're going to graduate school. Uh, and that was it. That, that was pretty much like your your options um, because it, it would be almost impossible for you to get a job straight out of uh, an, uh, an undergraduate program and go straight into a company, almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so now that, that's really changed. And I, and I do, I do, also espouse the, the, the concept of hire good smart people and and, and they'll learn. And, and we see that throughout our organization. And the other thing that we've tried to do is make sure people have, you know, develop their careers within the organization so that you have somebody who, you know, is a bench scientist. We've got folks that were bench scientists that are in program management. Or they're in regulatory now, or they're so getting them to move around the organization. And, and certainly, I was very fortunate and benefited from that at Shire. I moved into running program management for Shire. Um, I didn't know anything about program management when I when I went from had a discovery to doing that. But um, the president of the company was was like, "Hey, these are your programs that are moving into development. You might as well, you know, uh, oversee them from the program management seat." um so there's a lot to be said for that aspect i think that we do well here um at homology also
0: yeah yeah well the uh you know i i don't know that the struggle it's great to hear that uh you know that that, that there's a a more well-prepared workforce uh coming out of academia and 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 industry uh i don't i don't know that the crunch is going to get any easier to deal with given the growth forecast for this space i mean you know you it's i i I rarely put a whole bunch of stock in analyst forecasts, but th- this one, you know, gene editing, gene therapy, uh, it's without a doubt, um, you know, I've seen reputable sources pegging it at upwards of 20% CAGR over the next five years. Um, so a few questions on that, starting with, I mean, do, do you think like if if we're looking at 20, 20 plus percent CAGR, we see, you know, new companies popping up all the time, new uh, manufacturing facilities popping up all the time, new CDMO. Uh, facilities popping up all the time. Um, if if we're growing that fast, uh, can can we grow that fast? Do we have the people to grow that fast?
1: Well, I think I, I agree with the projection is going to be very rapid growth. And a lot of it has to do with a lot of companies forming. Um, and the reason a lot of companies are forming is because there continues to be great science being done at these academic universities. But um, there's also a lot of capital out there. Right. So there's a lot of VC to who have, you know, raised huge funds uh, that are able to seed those kind of companies uh, now. Um, and I do worry about whether we have the ability to keep up, even in a town like Boston. And, you know, I've been reading like, you know, there's going to be other biotech hubs in addition to San Diego, San Francisco and New York. Um, you know, you're, you're looking at Austin, Texas or Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, there's other of these hubs that are starting to spread up that are really um, based on university ecosystem in those towns. And so that's what you're starting to see now, but we do absolutely see a real uh, competitive environment now um, with particularly the, the more junior folks that are coming in the door, um, who've got three offers in their hands and they're asking you for, um, a pretty sizable starting salary sure. and, and equity and, um, and you got to just keep rolling with it. So it's, it, it's definitely a challenge.
0: Yeah. You mentioned the capital markets. Um, so, a, a, a friend and, and frequent guest on my show is Alan Shaw, who's a pretty active financial guy in the, in the biotech space. Um, and every now and then, you know, we 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 have these conversations about the fact that there's just, you know, money everywhere, a lot of people with their hands out, but a lot of people doling the money out too. Um, and every now and then he expresses, uh, he hints at concern around the sustainability of, of those capital markets. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think um what I'm seeing are earlier and earlier stage kind of science uh get funded. Uh, in terms of, you know, you're building a company around it. And, and I just had this conversation with a colleague last night, uh, that, you know, around what's getting funded, what companies are getting started based on the science and how many of them are really going to make it. You know, you really need to show, I think, early uh, for something to be successful developability, right? So it, you can have the coolest science in the world, um, but translating that science into something that actually can potentially become uh, a clinical program or a commercial drug uh, is, is difficult. And I think that's a challenge because we've got all these different gene editing technologies that are coming out, you know, CRISPR 1.0, 2.0. I think we're up to 5.0 at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's all an improvement on the original kind of concept. Um, so you wonder how the CRISPR 1.0, to are, are gonna fare. Um, just to use them as an example. But I see this across, you know, immuno-oncology. I see it in different fields as well. Um, definitely the newer science is, is, is getting uh, funded. The, the, the issue there is, and, and, and now putting my former academic hat on, the funding for science at the universities has gone way down from the NIH point of view. And that ecosystem is probably going to collapse if we don't beat that up. Um, a, a good number of academics now really are working closely with companies for their funding just to keep that pipeline going. And, and companies do recognize this and have, have set aside a good chunk of money, you know some of the big companies, to really start funding that kind of research because they recognize that that pipeline is slowing down uh, uh, the number of new ideas. So I, I think there is some cracks in the infrastructure, if you will, uh, along those lines.
0: The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at citivalifesciences.com backslash biotech. That's C Y T I V A life sciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Also, related to capital, you know, you take a company like yours, uh, you know, f- f- I- I'll ask you at what point in your, you know, six year sort of continuum to date? I know you said there was some formation activity prior to that that's that six year mark, but at, at what point did you put a stake in the ground? And this is going to relate to, you know, your, your, uh finance structure. At what point did you put a stake in the ground and say, you know what? Um we're going to we're going to invest in manufacturing capacity in-house, you know, we're going to staff that up and and we're going to, you know, take take that risk, right? Like at, at what point did did, did
1: that kind of come to come to pass where you're like this is what we're going to yeah. do. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a combination I think. So it was about 2 years into actually running the company, so 2017 early 2018 timeframe where we felt like we were on the right track with our lead program, PKU uh, gene therapy. And we had really demonstrated in vivo proof of concept around our gene editing approach. Mm -hmm. And so I, I felt like, okay, we're truly going to be not just another gene therapy company, but we're going to be, you know, have two, uh, two platforms or dual platforms, if you will, a gene, a gene therapy platform and a gene editing platform. Um, and then pile on top of that, my experience in going through um, multiple manufacturing uh, shortages issues, particularly in 2008, when Genzyme really struggled uh, with their Alston plant. And then Shire kind of got dragged into that because we had uh, drugs for those two patient populations, the Gaucher patient population, the Fabry patient population. And I was kind of thrust into the middle of it from the Shire point of view. Um, trying to manage, you know, how do we get drug to patients who now don't have access to, to drug? And the FDA worked really closely with us to help out. Um, it just made a huge impact on me is what can go wrong when you kind of hit that stumbling block in manufacturing. So then if you translate that to AAV manufacturing, which is very nascent in in, in where we are, it just made all the sense in the world to me. To make that investment in in infrastructure and people because having control over the quality of your uh, product is hugely important and and i'm seeing this now play out in a number of situations where companies are relying on third-party manufacturers that are way behind in their timelines you've got the fda that's really really tightening up the specifications for gene therapy because there's been uh, a few safety issues that have popped up in this field uh, over the last couple of years, and the bar is really getting raised. So, so having control over your destiny is so important because the worst thing that can happen to you is for, through no fault of your own, is fall behind a timeline and have to communicate that externally, particularly particularly if you're a public company. Um, and I didn't ever want to be in that situation, and thankfully we have not. And so. Uh, that i think were you know were some of the reasons that led to that decision back in 2017 and we couldn't be more pleased that we made that decision today
0: yeah so so i want to i want to revisit sort of that that thought process and, uh, process and the execution back in 2017 i mean you you know you just mentioned that you, you never want to find yourself in a position where you need to communicate that we're way behind our timelines and then that's due in large part to you know capacity at the cdmo level uh, or cmo level um at the same time, avoiding that conversation requires a whole bunch of conversation. At the point where you say, "You know what? We need money. <laughs> we need resources to to build this 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 infrastructure, to build this manufacturing capacity, and and staff it up and manage it in house." Um, so, so how how did you like? I, I mean, I don't I don't I don't expect you to name names, Doctor Zianavis, but how how did you go about uh, you know sort of rallying the troops? And again, harkening back to that comment I made earlier around salesmanship as as the leader of the company, yeah. um, you know, convincing investors that this wasn't uh, wasn't as big a risk as it might look like on paper, or convincing the board that that this was the direct route to go. Because, and I've said this multiple times on this very podcast. Uh, it seems like I'm, I'm more often than not talking to leaders of, of selling gene therapy companies who are saying like, there's no way we could ever possibly think about doing this in house. But then for every, you know, three or four of those folks, there's one who's like, there's no way that we could ever possibly think about not doing this in house. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm still trying to suss all that out. Like wh- where, where that kind of crux is where you fall on either, either side of that fence. But, um, what did you have to do as a leader of the company? That's, I, I use a lot of words, but the, ultimately the question is, what did you have to do at that point? What challenges did you face? How did you have to, you know, what challenges did you have to overcome to put the shovel in the ground, so to speak?
1: Yeah, it, it, was, um, it was significant. and I, I was very fortunate to have um, backers like uh, 5AM, Arch, uh, and, you know, that, that really kind of led the Series A that, that got it. I think, obviously, look, you can talk all you want and you can sell all you want, but you got to put your money where your mouth is. We had to have data. And we did have you know, very strong preclinical data on uh, gene therapy and gene editing. So proving that to, to um, our own investors was very important. And then we went out and raised a Series B, uh, which was a sizable Series B, um, you know, with, on, the, on the back of that you know, very strong preclinical data. Uh, and the fact that, that as a team, we executed really, really well uh, to get to that point. And I think we've demonstrated our, our track record there. And that helped with those conversations. And then it's it's all about uh you know telling investors that you know investing in this is really going to lead to a much quicker timeline, a much uh you know, cleaner ability to hit those timelines, and ultimately creating a lot of value in the company um, because you know, we sat back three four years ago knowing that the bar is going to get raised on AAB manufacturing, you know, CMC uh, specifications and analytics. Mm-hmm. We we could predict that. We, we based on our experience, had seen that in biologics over and over and over again. And we knew that A B was going to go through the same thing. So getting ahead of that, I think that vision uh, really kind of... Um, made a significant impact on, on uh, additional investors who came into the company at that time. And that's paid off. Uh, and so I think, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of, uh, you know, put up or shut up. Uh, and we were able to kind of walk that line and, and get to the other side.
0: Yep. Yeah. One of the advantages I think with a, a, a therapeutic, like those or therapeutics, like those that you're working on, um, in your position is that you don't necessarily need, you know. Half a million square feet, right? Like you don't need see you know, chains of great big giant, you know, two thousand liter bioreactors and so on and so forth. Um, so now you have this twenty five thousand square foot GMP facility. Um, what's in it? What, what, you know, what kind of walk us through what, what's in yeah. that space? What kind of tech are you
1: are you running there? Sure, uh, you know, and you're absolutely right. In gene therapy, you need a fraction of the space you would need to make a monoclonal antibody for an enzyme replacement therapy, and the team that we have here, uh, led by Tim Kelly, you know, who is the head of tech ops at Shire, and was part of the team that built out that gigantic plant there that you see on uh, Route Two and uh, One Twenty Eight. Um, here, I mean, basically, with twenty-five thousand square feet, we have a three-by-five hundred-liter uh, bioreactor uh, system in, in multiple suites, and we're going all—we've gone all the way up to a two-thousand-liter uh bioreactor uh which is the highest in the industry we had that also in a suite in our uh, manufacturing facility you also need process development lab space so early so you need the 2 liter 50 liter bioreactors and, and the early work that goes into vector optimization uh, and manufacturability but we have all that here in house um which really really does help us you know keep our timelines and make sure uh that we're uh on it in terms of manufacturing
0: yeah that's very cool. All right, well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about what's being manufactured. What you know, what 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 that process development activity is uh, is focused on, and, and, and where the manufacturing uh, capacity will be put to use. Uh, you know, I mentioned from from the outset, uh, I'm particularly being um, the business of biotech, right? Produced by bioprocess online. All things biologics are 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 cell and gene therapies, gene editing uh, therapies included. Um, But when you start throwing, you know, the the impact of of gene therapies on the the MAB space, you know, that really piques my interest. So I do want to I I want to get some more detail on that platform, but I don't want to, you know, I want to give the floor to you to tell me about all the programs you're working on. But uh, that that is particularly
1: interesting to me. Yeah, Uh, and it's very interesting to us as well. Um, You know, the programs that we have ongoing right now is we're in a phase two uh, with our PKU gene therapy. Uh, program that's on the heels of uh, positive data from our dose escalation phase to identify you know, doses to bring forward into a large number of patients. And we're recruiting and enrolling and dosing patients there now. Um, we also have guided uh, to the fact that we will have uh, started a uh, a gene therapy program for a disease called Hunter syndrome, uh, which is a monogenic lysosomal storage disorder. Uh, And that's a disease that a lot of us here uh, have worked on at our days at Shire and and developed an enzyme replacement therapy. We think we can really improve on that and give patients a one and done approach versus a weekly infusion. Uh, And then our first editing program is for the pediatric population, PKU. And the reason we're using editing uh, in that population is because, you know, these kids find out a day after they're born, they have PKU. The parents find out. Uh, It's on the newborn screen panel. And, you know, the key in that in this disease is to really intervene as early as you can, because right out of the gate, these kids are losing IQ points and executive function capabilities. So we're starting in adults right now with gene therapy, but ultimately with gene editing, we want to go earlier. And with gene editing, you can go directly and make that correction of the genome uh, with our gene editing approach in a very precise way based on homologous recombination. You want to do that because very early in the life of a child, by the time they're 15, their liver, liver doubles 15, 16 times. So that you have the potential kind of wash out a gene therapy approach. That's not direct insertion in the, into the chromosome. So that's why we have both arms of that. And we can kind of use both arms of that, uh, of our platform for different diseases where you have rapidly dividing tissue. And then you alluded to our GTX MAP platform, and this is basically using our vectors to uh, deliver the cDNA that encodes for a full-length IgG monoclonal antibody. Uh, And and that's pretty rare because it's a very difficult uh, uh, construct to make. And we've shown very, very nice preclinical data publicly, uh, and we're writing this up now for publication, that shows the expression of an antibody in multiple animal models um, that is specific for complement C5. And that's the target uh, for diseases such as PNH. So this is basically uh, Alexion's monoclonal antibody, Solaris and Mm -hmm. Um, And the ability to have a a constant level of antibody that's made is very beneficial based on on which target you, you pick. So you can have the continuous suppression of C5 in PNH patients versus if you give a monoclonal antibody uh you know you're going to see a peak and then after a while you're going to see a trough and then you got to give another injection and you see the peak and a trough so it basically looks like a sign wave. here with gene therapy you have expression within three or four weeks and you continue to make that antibody you use the liver basically as an antibody producing organ and yeah. that's very advantageous for certain monoclonal antibodies There's there's different targets where you don't want it on all the time, but for C5 uh, uh, knockdown and targeting, it's okay to have it on all the time. So we're really excited. There's a number of programs behind this one that are in early discovery, but we've named a clinical development candidate already, and that is entering into IND enabling studies right now. We're doing all the tox work. So the platform really, as you can see, it has a lot of angles to it uh, that we're that we're exploring and developing uh, as we go along. Yeah.
0: I mean, and I could see you know, with, with those multiple angles, I mean, you know, if, if you follow along, I'm trying to, trying to follow along here from uh, sort of like uh, there's, there's an age timeline to follow. Like you're playing different angles on the, uh, you know, the pa- patient age, you're playing different angles on biology itself, human biology. Um, I can certainly see why it's important to uh, uh grow and add to that 215 i mean it requires a lot of expertise to explore all those angles um on that gtx map platform uh you know you mentioned that it's it, it it's rare because it's it's difficult to do it's challenging um are, are there others in the in the spe- i mean is, do you, do you do you sort of see that as a as a nascent opportunity more industry wide as well not that i want you to give up the secret sauce if it's something that's proprietary and secret to uh to homology, but what 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 do you sort of see as a, a forecast for that approach?
1: Well, I think it is very nascent. There's a few companies that have embarked on this, but I think we're one of the only, if not the only company, to be able to make a full-length, heavy and light-chain monoclonal antibody. I've seen single chain, I've seen uh, FC, uh, and I've seen other approaches to try to knock down, but having a full-length monoclonal antibody is pretty rare. So I do think that it's it's actually a very fertile area uh, for growth, and it's something that we fully intend uh, to really uh, put a lot of focus on and develop in a number of indications. And and I think even here we can get out of just only you know rare only diseases. We can actually target larger diseases uh, mm-hmm. here as well, and ultimately be able to you know the goal is to be able to give one gene therapy infusion and have that patient pretty much be set. For the rest of their lives that, yes. uh, versus going through uh, a daily or a weekly or a quarterly uh, dosing um, there's a chronicity uh, attached to that, that 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 that's a patient burden that's not insignificant and the cost is not insignificant so right. we are talking about you know paying for uh, Solaris, saltris for uh, the rest of that patient's life that's that's a lot of money yeah. uh, give it once and you're
0: done. Yeah. The single dose aspect is certainly, uh, obviously central to sort of the democratization of, 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 of therapeutics. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, uh, about your, you, you know, any other approaches or, or thoughts around accessibility, patient centricity, and, and specifically from a cost perspective, what homology's approach is, you know, that's a, if, when you, when you get closer to the patient, you get closer to the payer, that's just a a, a daily and common conversation. Like this stuff is just, it's just so expensive. Yeah. um So, so what's your take on that? What's homology doing to sort of affect uh, that, that situation?
1: Yeah. I mean, we're very well versed in, in that conversation you just mm. referred to uh, and then talking to pairs and, and, you, you know, Key opinion leaders, you know, the key stakeholders um, is, is very important early on. We have a group already here. You know, we're in the clinic with one program right now, uh, and we already have you know that group built up to be able to have those conversations early. And I think that's really, really important. And ultimately, we want to get to the point uh, where uh, you know the cost of goods here are very much more manageable than they are right now. And that comes with innovation on manufacturing, which is why we've invested. That's another reason why we've invested and we continue to innovate, is to get the cost of making these drugs down uh, so that the cost ultimately to the patient is, is lowered and becomes much more uh, reasonable and recognizable. And I, I also think for these one and done therapies, you know, we, we need to really figure out a model where payers um, can kind of work with you. But right now, um, they're very used to the chronicity models. They have an annual budget, and they have to hit that annual budget. If you're talking to them about a one-and-done, that kind of annual budget concept kind of goes out the window. So there's, right. not, there's been those that are have come out with their plans uh, that have already kind of been approved in gene therapy. Um, but I think that we can do a better job there uh, as well moving forward to be able to try to work with the payers to get to a place where um, we can get these these therapies to patients in a way that's that's not going to be onerous.
0: Yeah, all right, cool. Uh, you know, I I wanted to I think you sort of already asked the or answered the question I wanted to ask around, you know, your 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 thoughts around indications beyond, you know, the the current liver, liver eye sort of uh approach that that gene therapy uh is taking. You you sort of answered that though. I mean, if I, I you know, I I I look at the multifaceted approach that homology is taking, you know, to your point even, you know, if if you can if you can create a, a monoclonal antibody production facility out of a person's liver you can do a lot of things with that right it opens up a lot of a uh, lot of indication windows um but but any thought i guess any any near term thoughts on where you might be moving next
1: yeah i think you know this last move we made with the gtx map that that is going to keep us plenty busy for the the shorter term so i yeah. think right now we're kind of you know in the kind of execution phase so that we can make sure we can show good progress on the three clinical programs we'll have in the clinic this year. Bring the GTX MAB uh, program forward, and again, you know th- that target uh, C five is PNH myosinia gravis. It's a target for a number of diseases. Uh, AuhS, um, so you can have one drug for multiple indications. So I think we have our hands full right now. Uh, yeah. time, for the next couple of years, anyway.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay. So what is the next big step at homology? What's uh, you know, what's on your immediate radar from a business perspective, you know, even moving outside the pipeline? What's on what's on Dr. Uh, Zeonobus's plate right now?
1: Uh, a lot. Uh, so <laughs> we're, we're actually executing on two INDs right now uh to get these trials started and doing that concurrently. I don't think that in my career that even at a big company like Shire, we were doing that uh, exactly over and one on top of the other. So that's consuming and has consumed a lot of our time. Uh, and right now with the FDA, there's a lot of conversations uh, ongoing, of course, around safety and efficacy, risk-benefit profile. Um, so that's been uh, certainly uh, um, front and center for, for us uh, this year. And then, you know, getting ready to get these trials up and running off the ground is is no uh, easy feat either. So the Hunter trial and the PKU gene editing trial, uh, we're getting ramped up. And then obviously, you know, continuing to move the GTX map program forward uh, as well. So a lot operationally. And then in the meantime, you know, I'm always paying attention to the culture of the company, the structure of the company. What else can we be doing business wise? What what other assets are out there potentially that we could acquire? Um, so I'm always constantly scanning the universe for you know ways to make sure that we keep our balance sheet strong, but also uh, make sure we continue to move the company forward from an innovation perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah, hands full indeed. What's your what's your best advice for someone who is new to to the role? Let's say uh, you know I, I like to say. Uh, I'm going to assume that you like your brother-in-law, right? That's maybe not a safe assumption to make, but I'm going to assume that you like your brother-in-law and your brother-in-law is kind of like short on the heels of of what you're doing, right? Following in your footsteps, about to launch a a company similar to yours. Um, you know, you just rattle off a lot of things that you're responsible for and that your team's responsible for and you're responsible for leading, but just it's a it's a hard question to answer I know but I'm putting you on the spot what's your best advice for a guy who's kind of following in your in your lead
1: Actually I think it's a pretty uh easy question you got to have a steel chin basically uh you're going to take your lumps and you're going to take your punches and you got to get up dust yourself off and keep moving forward and you know this is not an easy um an easy field uh to, see, to succeed in you you're you're trying to take biology and coerce it into um, a treatment for patients who really need them and, and getting across all those hurdles along the way, uh, there's so many factors that go into it. You're going to take your lumps and you've got to keep your chin up and you've got to keep moving forward. Uh, and and my, my background in hockey has really paid off because I learned that as, as not a very stout individual. I took a lot of lumps, uh, growing up and playing hockey. So my nose got broken more than a couple of times. Uh, that, that's probably my best advice is just, just be determined and keep your feet moving and keep moving forward because it's not going to be easy.
0: Well, that's great advice. I appreciate that. And by the way, your, your nose, I mean, I'm looking at you right now. You'd never know. Your
1: nose looks Uh, great. No, it actually, if I, if I moved it around, (laughs) It, you, you, the viewership of this podcast would go straight down if I All right. well, I'm, please, to, I'm ma- malleable my is after uh you know 18 years of hockey so
0: yeah well please refrain from touching your nose then we don't want that <laughs> it's been uh it's been great talking with you Dr. Zianavis. I appreciate it thanks for making the time for us and uh and sharing some insight with our audience I think it was uh t- time well spent for sure
1: great thank you Matt it was a pleasure to be on thanks for the invite
0: yeah, my pleasure. So that's Homology Medicine's uh, Dr. Arthur Zianabos. Now, for those of you following along uh, on audio who can't see the spelling, just so you're aware, if you want to look them up, it's T-Z-I-A-N-A-B-O-S, but it's pronounced Zianabas. So there you go. Uh, I'm Matt Piller. This is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva, which offers a host of great resources for new and emerging biotechs at com backslash Emerging Biotech. We offer a host of great resources for emerging biopharmists too. You can find us at BioprocessOnline.com where I invite you to subscribe to my newsletter. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you did hit that subscribe button, give us a review and we'll see you next week. In the meantime, thanks for listening.